Welcome to Frontline Church South OKC Sermon Podcast. Each week we will have new sermon content from Sunday mornings, both video and audio options. Please visit south.frontlinechurch.com for more information. If you have any questions, need prayer, or have any other needs at all, please email hello at frontlinechurch.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. Scripture for today's teaching is Mark 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is the word of God to us. All right, you guys can be seated. Yes, that's it. Let's go to lunch. Good job. Hey, great job for standing up and sitting down and standing up and sitting down. Uh, this, is, this is what we're talking about today. Welcome to Frontline. My name is Andrew. I get to serve as one of our pastors here. If you are processing what it is that you think about Christianity or Jesus, maybe you're turning back into church after being gone for a while, I think today is really helpful. I think this series of the Gospel of Mark is going to be really helpful just to ask the question, who is Jesus, and why does that matter for me, and why should we listen to what he says? So, man, we're so glad that you're here. If we haven't had the chance to meet, I'd really love uh, to meet you after the service. Uh, If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 1, verse 1. That's all that we're going to be looking at today, and uh, there's a lot, honestly, there's, there's more than you would expect slammed into that verse. Uh, But if you don't have a Bible, it's okay. I have mine. We have the words up on the screen as well for you. A couple things that I want to let you know about. First, some family business. Uh, Man, our pastoral team has been really thankful for the decline in the COVID numbers and for the accessibility of the COVID vaccine. It's been a real gift to see both of those things happen simultaneously. So uh, we are announcing that on May 2nd, starting May 2nd, uh, masks are going to be optional in both of our services. Uh, this is coming after working with the doctors that we're in contact with and getting feedback from them. And, and so this is something that we're going to make a change to that protocol. Uh, so listen, here's what I want to say to you. Some of you that is received as really exciting and good, and you're like, I'm so ready to burn my mask. Uh, others of you, you're like, you, you love it, you sleep in it, and you're, you're like, I don't want to. And, and so wherever you're at on that spectrum, and that's totally fine, here's what we're not going to do as a church. We're not going to allow this to divide us. We're going to be a church that is marked by humility, is marked by caring for one another, is marked by drifting towards the other and showing compassion. So if you show up in a mask, no one is going to think that that's weird. If you show up without one, we're not going to judge you. So I want you to know that that's the change coming up. And we're just trying to continue to be wise as a church and care for one another. So that being said, just heads up on that. We'll announce it again next week just in case people don't hear it. If you are a person that is looking for a little bit more of a, like, uh, to sit in a place where there's not as many people as some of those protocols change, then reach out to us because I think we've got some options. And our balcony is a great option and then also in the den as well. But we want to do anything we can to accommodate you and to make you feel safe and cared for. So we're so excited for uh, all that's happening as the city starts to uh, slowly reopen, but that's just one of the changes that we wanted to let you know about. Sound good? Okay, great. Uh, Hey, one other thing I want to let you know about real fast is some resources as we jump into this book. This is not a book that uh, we want you just to show up on a Sunday and listen to. Uh, We actually want you to dive into this book with us, be shaped and be formed by the gospel of Mark. So a few resources that we're going to throw up for you. Uh, Honestly, these are all really helpful. They vary in terms of difficulty. Uh, If you can only afford one, I'd somebody say, I can only get one. Which one should I get? 
and I pointed them to The King's Cross by Tim Keller. It's a great book. It doesn't cover every line in Mark, but it's very accessible and very helpful. And I think that'd be a great one if you only want to get one of these. Uh, the N.T. Wright one, Mark for Everyone, is very, very easy to read. It'll take you no time at all. It's really short. The Gospel of Mark, this N-I-C-N-T, by the way, just a little hint, anytime you see a bunch of letters after a commentary, it's always going to mean that it's complicated and hard. So if you're a nerd, then that's the one that I would buy. It's honestly one of my favorites, William Lane, because I'm a nerd, and uh, I really appreciated his commentary. Uh, Donald English, middle of the road, just middle of the road commentary. It's really good. And then R.C. Sproul, is, uh, it's, it's basically his sermon notes as he's preaching through the Gospel of Mark. It's a great commentary. Um, I want to point you to two other resources that aren't on here. This is the ESV Scripture Journal. We do not have these for sale here, but you can find these online at Crossway or probably on Amazon. We're going to be in this book for 44 weeks. So this is not a waste of money to buy this and journal your way through as we're going through on Sundays. And then one other resource not related specifically to Mark This is a book I recently read, How God Became King, The Forgotten Story of the Gospels by N.T. Wright. It's just so good. I think a lot of us use the word gospel. We don't really know what we're talking about, and we kind of assume that the gospels just kind of landed out of nowhere. This is giving you the background story and the narrative. It's subtitled, The Forgotten Story of the Gospels, showing you all of the history of the Old Testament leading into it. It's very helpful. Highly recommend. If you're like, that's not enough, then email me because I have like six or seven other commentaries that I didn't want to overwhelm you with that we could point you to that are all really great. So email me on our website and I'll send you some more resources. Sound good? Three of you are like, yeah, that sounds great. Everyone else, I'm sorry. This is what we're doing. Okay, let me pray for you and we'll jump in. God, thank you for this gift of Mark, the gift of hearing the gospel according to Mark. And I pray today that you would shape our church and form our church in the same way that you were trying to shape the early Roman Christians that received this gospel, would you form us to know how to live in a complicated culture, know how to live in a moment like ours and stay faithful to Jesus? And God, I pray that the, the, the faithfulness that we have in Jesus wouldn't be the Jesus of our own making, but it would be the Jesus of scripture. It would be, it would be the real, true, actual Jesus. And I pray as we spend the next uh, year plus as a church going through this book, God, would you, would you just do something that's bigger than what I even know how to ask or imagine? I, I know that, I know that it's, it's just one, one book, but would you shape us and dial us in more into your image? Help me today. Help us today as we open up your word. Pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. I want you to imagine being a Christian in Rome in 65 A.D., I want you to imagine this with me. You would get up early on a Sunday morning and you would wake up before the sun is up. You'd secretly make it out of the house, carefully making your way through the city of Rome, trying to find a group of other Christians. And once you found those Christians, you all collectively would go down underneath the city into something called the catacombs. And that's where you would celebrate the Lord's Day. That's where you would have church. It wouldn't be in a beautiful cathedral surrounded by stained glass. It wouldn't be in a 24-7 fitness club, or at least what used to be a 24-7 fitness club, now turned Frontline South, it would be in the bottom of the catacombs surrounded by bodies and bones. And this is where the early church would go in the heart of the persecution for fear of what the Roman government might do if they found out 
if they were actually followers of Jesus. And here's how this all happened. Here's what happened leading up to the secrecy and leading up to all the hiding. A few years prior to this, Roman Nero had essentially started to lose his mind. And as Roman, as, as Roman Emperor Nero is losing his mind, he, he had all kinds of erratic behavior coming out. He had his mom executed. He had uh, friends in the Roman Senate that he basically forced them into committing suicide. He was killing his other public governmental enemies. He was doing all these things that people are getting really worried about his behavior. And it all culminated in 64 AD and what we now call the fire of Rome or the great fire of Rome. And it's widely believed that the emperor Nero was the one who actually set the fire in the first place. And everybody suspected him doing this, but what he did is he actually deflected and blamed Christians for the fire that burned over 80% of Rome to the ground, left many people dead, an untold amount of damages. And so to deflect all the attention off of himself, he began to blame these early Christians and said, they were the ones who started the fire. We should round them up and kill them. And that's exactly what happened. He began to round up thousands upon thousands of Christians. There was some persecution prior to this, but it was very minimal and it was very specific and targeted. This was the most intense, widespread persecution that had ever happened for the early church. So they rounded up thousands of people. You had some people that were giving up their own family members in interrogation processes, giving up friends and saying, yeah, they're Christians too. More and more people kept getting arrested. So what Nero did to punish these Christians for quote unquote starting the fire is he would take some of them and sew them alive into animal skins and throw the animal skin into the arena so that wild beasts would be set free and devour these early Christians. For others, he would just make them fight one another in gladiatorial games. For others, what he did is he dipped them alive in tar and put them on spikes to light the evening sky of his dinner parties with flaming Christians. He would light these Christians uh, on fire and just they would be like lights to light up the night sky. You, You probably have read some about this or heard some about this in your history classes. Nero was horrific. And so leaders in the church and people in the church were getting captured by the hundreds and by the thousands. Great persecution was unleashed. This is why if you were a Christian in Rome, you would secretly make your way underneath the catacombs where bodies were and bones were to worship Jesus. And imagine this morning that you and I get up early and secretly make our way to the catacombs. The pastor opens up a new document that we've not read from, a new book, and he begins to read from this book. And over time, it gives you courage And it gives you hope and it shapes your own way of living in this culture of Rome in this time that's difficult. It shapes your inspiration of what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. It forms you and it becomes maybe the most helpful book of the life of Jesus, helping you fall in love in greater ways and understand more of who he really was and what he was about. Over time, that document became known as the Gospel of Mark. That's what we're going to look at today. It takes less than one hour to read this book, and we're going to spend the next 44 weeks slowly working our way through the book. But before we get into the the specifics and why this book matters and why we chose this as opposed to other books and all of the context, what I want to do is just kind of introduce you to the author. So who is Mark? Who is this guy that wrote the gospel according to Mark? Well, the author's name is not written in in this story. We don't have his name inside of the Gospel of Mark itself. But the unbroken testimony of the early church and of history is that the author is a guy by the name of John Mark. He would often go by either John or Mark, sometimes John Mark. John Mark was not an eyewitness 
of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. He wasn't one of the 12 apostles, but he was a dear friend and a close companion with Peter and with Paul. In fact, he primarily was with Peter, functioned as a translator for Peter and an assistant for Peter. And so what we have in this gospel, think about this, is the eyewitness account of the life, death, and resurrection through the apostle Peter's lens, through Peter's own life. And, and that's fascinating to think about. There, there had never been a gospel written before, and yet what we have, the very first one, is through the lens of the apostle Peter. Mark is an important guy for the early church. His, uh, some, some scholars think that his mom's home was the, the site for the Lord's Supper, where the Lord's Supper was. We don't know if that's true or not. What we do know is that John Mark's house became a base for mission and prayer for the early church. Do you remember that bizarre story in Acts where Peter gets released from prison because of this angelic encounter and he goes to the house? The house that he goes to is John Mark's house. Fascinating enough. And you remember he tries to get in and the servant girl shows up and she's like, oh my gosh, it's Peter. She goes to tell everybody. She's like, Peter's out of jail. And they're like, no, no, that's not Peter. And then they say, that's just Peter's angel. And it's like, well, if it's Peter or his angel, someone should let him in. I don't, you know, just let the poor guy in. They forget about him. Well, that was John Mark's house where that happened. You'll, you'll know from Acts that uh, John Mark and Paul the apostle had a falling out because Barnabas is cousin of John Mark. And there's a long story there. They had a falling out. They didn't speak for a long time. Later, they got reconciled. Yes, the authors of scripture are human. Pretty fascinating to think about. They had a falling out, but got reconciled. And John Mark ends with Peter and Paul as in 64 AD, sometime after the fire of Rome, most likely on the same day, Nero put both Peter and Paul to death. And so John Mark was with them to their end. And now what we have is him writing through the lens of Peter with his help, the story of Jesus Christ. It's a fascinating story. How's this book structured? Because it actually is important to understand this before you get into it. How's it structured? Well, it's 16 chapters long, and it moves at a breakneck speed. In fact, if you, if you read this book in one sitting, you will be exhausted when you finish. There's a word that's used uh, that we translate from Greek into English. We translate it immediately and it's used 42 times in this gospel, only 12 other times in scripture, 42 times in this gospel alone. It's like immediately Jesus did this. Immediately he did that. Immediately he did, I mean, literally immediately is used again and again and again. It's a fast paced book. If you've seen the movie 1917, the World War I film, amazing movie, it kind of has a similar feel where you're moving along with one camera angle and it doesn't stop and you can't catch a breath. But the 16 chapter book is fascinating because halfway through, the, the, the halfway point is basically covering three years of the life and ministry of Jesus. We parachute in. We don't meet Jesus at his birth. We don't hear any story of the incarnation. There's no story of him growing up as a young boy. We just parachute right in, and there he is. Jesus is a full-grown 30-year-old man kicking off his ministry. And then the last eight chapters of the book basically take the last week of the life of Jesus, slow way down, as it were, and just unpack the, the last few moments of the life of Jesus leading up to his crucifixion on the cross. This is a fascinating book. It's the first gospel ever written. Uh, Mark, I'm sorry, Matthew and Luke are both using Mark to come up with their own content for their narrative and check the story. So this is a really interesting work. No gospel account had ever been written before. This book is a real gift. And the main question that the book wants you to ask and answer yourself and myself 
is who do you say that Jesus is? This is the question again and again. Now, we, the reader, are brought into it in the first verse. You'll see in just a minute. But halfway through, Peter is asked by Jesus, who do you say that I am? And he responds, you're, you're the Messiah. He gets it right and then immediately gets it way wrong. And then what you have is the transfiguration of Jesus leading up to the last eight chapters. At the very end of the book, there's one more statement from the Roman soldier just after helping kill Jesus. And he says, truly, this was the son of God. So you're meant to ask the question, who is this? You hear it at the front, you hear it in the middle, you hear it at the end, and all throughout it's trying to beg the question, but what about you? Who do you say that Jesus is? Now, one more thing real quick before we jump in. Uh, If you're reading a book right now, any book, any book that's like published in the last 100 years, um, you'll open up the book and chances are the first thing that you're gonna see is quotes from other people saying why you should care about the book. And then you turn the page and it'll say, this book was published on this date and it was printed in these places as if anybody cares about that. And and then you'll turn the page and it'll have uh, a table of contents that structures out the book. And you turn the page and it'll have a prologue. Then you'll turn the page and I mean, you'll keep doing that. Eventually you get to the intro of the book. Do you know what I'm talking about? That's because in our society today, paper is really cheap and it's easy to come by. But in the first century, this was not the case. It was, it was very expensive and hard to find. So authors had to use every single word very carefully. They had to be really cautious and wise about using this paragraph as opposed to this paragraph and saying this thing as speedily and, and, and summar, summarizing as much as they could as possible. And so over time in this culture, they developed a literary device where basically the first line or the first part of the book would summarize the entire point of the book. Instead of a table of contents or all the other stuff that we have today, they would give a line and say, I'm going to pack the whole message of this book into that first line. And that's what we have in Mark. It's difficult to explain the complexity and and, and the nuance and how powerful this first line, Mark 1.1, is. If you understand the first line, you understand the whole book. I have seven pages of notes on one verse. It's loaded with content. So, all right, let me nerd out with you and let's jump in. You ready? That's not very convincing. I don't feel good about that, but we're going to do it anyway. Okay. Three parallel stories that are converging together to give us this story. Storyline number one, creation. Storyline number one, creation. Mark 1.1, 1, 1, let's go. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the son of God. The, the, the story opens up with the beginning. You are meant to think of some other place in scripture where this says that phrase or a similar phrase. Anyone know where this comes from? Genesis chapter one, verse one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What you have in this story is in, in a sense, Mark loading up his narrative with creation imagery and metaphor and concepts because he wants you to think of this not just as a gospel narrative or account, but as a new creation narrative. God is doing something in Jesus to create something new. And his gospel is loaded with creation and Garden of Eden imagery. Let me just give you a couple quick examples. Mark 1, verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. 
Now, I don't know if you ever have this moment where you're reading scripture and you're like, like a dove. I don't know what that means. Like there are certain things in scripture that are obvious. It's like, oh, I know, I think I know what's being said here. But like a dove is a bit weird. What does it mean that the spirit of God is like a dove? And it's funny to just hear the different things that people come up with to try to explain this. But here's what we miss out. There's actually a, an ancient set of documents called the Targum. The Targum was an Aramaic translation of the Old Testament that was the, the primary type of scripture that was used in Mark's day. Mark grew up reading the Targum, the Aramaic translation of the Old Testament. And in the Targum, Genesis 1 verse 2 reads like this. And the earth was without form and empty and darkness was on the face of the deep and the spirit of God fluttered above the face of the waters like a dove. And God spoke, let there be light. How interesting that Mark grew up reading the Targum that said that, and now he's talking about Jesus getting baptized, where you have creation in Genesis chapter one, and God speaking, and the Spirit of God hovering over the waters like a dove. You have Jesus going under the waters of his baptism, coming back up. You've got God speaking again, and you've got the Spirit of God like a dove present in the situation. Here's the point, friends, that something is happening that's bigger than just Jesus getting wet. This is a sign and a symbol that as Jesus has arrived on the scene, he is bringing with him a new creation. How amazing is this? And this is littered through the book. One other quick example in verse 12 says, the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan and he was with the wild animals. Do you remember the story in Genesis 1, the, the order of things? God creates, places Adam and Eve in the garden, and then what happens right after that? They get tempted by Satan in the garden, right? And then we know the story, they fail, they give in to temptation, releasing sin and dysfunction into the world. Well, this is a story of new creation. Jesus has his baptism, then he's led out into the wilderness, and he's tempted for 40 days, just like Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden, except Jesus didn't give in to sin, and he was victorious. What you have, even this reference to the wild animals, is making you think of the Garden of Eden and Adam. How fascinating is this, that this is a new creation with the arrival of Jesus on the scene? James Edwards, in his commentary, uh, uh, ironically called Mark, you know? It's like, what do I name my commentary? Mark, there we go. That's what he did, and he said this. He said, for Mark, the introduction of Jesus is no less momentous than the creation of the world. For in Jesus, a new creation is at hand. The storyline of scripture is creation, fall, recreation. Creation, God made us to live with him. He made us to live with one another in a certain type of way where we're submitted to his good authority, enjoying life with him, but we send. We fell in brokenness and dysfunction was released into our world. And the story that Mark is trying to get you to see is that, hey, Jesus is arriving on the scene. And with the arrival of Jesus on the scene, so is a new creation. This is storyline number one, creation. Storyline number two. You guys still with me? Yes. Okay. Storyline number two is Israel. Israel. Mark 1, verse 1. Look at it. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the Son of God. Now, you just kind of read that and go, oh, this is about Jesus, and Christ is his last name. That's what I thought growing up. You know, it's Mr. Christ. Could we call you Jesus? Are we like on a first name basis yet? Actually, Christ is not his last name. It's a title, and it's not just a title to describe him being divine. That's not actually at all what it's describing, although he was 
divine. The title means the anointed one or the Messiah. That's why some translations will say Jesus the Christ or Jesus the Messiah because this is trying to get you to, to understand there's a certain figure in the Old Testament called the Messiah or the anointed one, the son of David, the, the future king of Israel that was gonna come and bring peace and, and kick out our enemies and, and do something to restore the kingdom to Israel. This is what the Messiah is gonna do. There's all this Messiah language in the Old Testament. And so if you're a Jewish person reading this gospel, you immediately know who he's talking about. Oh, the Messiah, I know who the Messiah is. We've been waiting for the Messiah for a long, long time. Now, their vision of who he was and what he would be like completely wrong, very distorted and dysfunctional. We're going to see that, but they would have known who is being described in this story. That's why Mark immediately quotes from three different Old Testament passages in the first chapter. He quotes from Exodus, then he quotes from Malachi, then he quotes from Isaiah. This story is not dropping in out of nowhere, friends. This is building on an entire Old Testament narrative of people longing for Jesus, the son of David, this Messiah king who's gonna come and actually bring us peace and and restore the kingdom to Israel. That's what's being described here. Storyline number two, but the message is, hey, Jesus is that Messiah and he's not a king like you would expect. We're gonna learn that in just a little bit. Storyline number three, last storyline converging together to help us understand what's happening here is Rome. So you have creation, Israel, Rome. Mark 1, chapter 1, the beginning of, chapter 1, verse 1, rather, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, what what comes to mind when you hear that word gospel? I mean, we have gospel-centered movements. We've got gospel books. We have the gospel coalition we have together for the gospel. We've got all these gospely things that are happening. And you might say the gospel is the good news of Jesus, or the gospel is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Or for me growing up in church, the way that the gospel is packaged for me was the gospel is that God so loved you that he sent his son, that if you believe in him, because he died on the cross in your place for your sins, if you just believe in him, he'll forgive you and you get to go to be with him in heaven forever which is there's certainly elements of truth to that packaging of the gospel, but there's a ton missing. And my point is that in our culture, we tend to think of this word as a very religious Christian word, right? We don't talk about the gospel outside of the church. It's not a cultural word. It's a word that Christians use to describe our faith and the good news of Jesus. But for Mark's audience, that is not the case. For Mark's audience, he's writing to Romans right after the fire of Rome, somewhere in the late 60s AD. And he's writing to a predominantly Roman culture. And this word gospel, well before it was used to describe anything within Christianity, was actually used by the Roman government. Here's what's fascinating. The Romans had gospel announcements that would happen when one of two things occurred. When either a Roman emperor or a Caesar was born or put on the throne, they would gather everybody in the towns, everybody in the villages, and they would say, we have a gospel announcement that we want to herald. This Caesar has been born, or Caesar has ascended to the throne. Or the other thing that would happen and lead to a gospel announcement was when a strategic and decisive Roman military victory occurred in a distant land. They would say, hey, gather together. We've got a gospel announcement to give you. Euangelion in Greek to give you. The, the, the Roman army has been victorious and they've defeated our enemies here. We've won. 
We have peace because of Caesar, right? These were the gospel announcements. Some of you are a little skeptical, like, I don't know if that's real. Well, it is real, and I'll show you. In the late late 1800s, there was a calendar inscription. It's called the Inscription of Preen that dates back to 9 BC, and this is describing the birth of Julius Caesar, I'm sorry, Caesar Augustus. This is describing the birth of Caesar Augustus. And it was such a momentous occasion that Caesar Augustus wanted to change the entire Roman calendar based on his birth, ironically enough. And this is the announcement of his birth and of the fact that he has ascended to the throne as Caesar. Listen to this. Since providence, which has ordered all things and is deeply interested in our life, has set in most perfect order by giving us Augustus, whom she filled with virtue, that he might benefit humankind, sending him, listen to this language, as a savior, both for us and for our descendants, that he might end war and arrange all things. And since he, Caesar, by his appearance, excelled even our anticipations, and since the birthday of the god Augustus, they were considered gods, since the birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning of the gospel, euangelion, for the world which have been proclaimed on his account. And then it keeps going. How fascinating is that? Hey, we have a gospel announcement. Augustus, Caesar Augustus has been born. He's been better than we expected. He's going to end all wars. He's going to bring peace. He's going to restore Rome to its power. This is the gospel announcement. How fascinating. One other thing that's important is this isn't just true of this word gospel. It's also true of the phrase son of God. Son of God immediately for us conjures up images of what? Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, Son of God. But in a Roman context, Son of God meant something very different. I want to show you this photo. This is of a Roman ring, right? This is, or I'm sorry, a coin. This is a coin that was circulating in the time of Caesar Augustus. On one side is Caesar Augustus, and on the back, it has a Latin word, and this Latin word is divi filius. The F stands for filius. That in Latin means Son of God. How fascinating that in your money of the day in Rome, you would have these gospel announcements of Caesar Augustus being born and these gospel announcements of here's Caesar Augustus and we call him son of God. So here's what the gospel would have sounded like before Jesus ever entered the scene. Caesar Augustus is Lord and savior of all. He has defeated our enemies. He has brought salvation and peace. He has ascended to the throne. He is our king. He is the son of God. Everyone bow the knee and say, Caesar is Lord. This was the announcement of Rome. And so with that context and background in mind, look one more time with me at this opening line from Mark. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God of God. Those Roman Christians gathering in the catacombs would have had their minds and their hearts blown. Wait, are you saying that there's a different king that's arrived? Yes. Are you saying that Jesus is the rightful heir to the throne, not just of Rome, but of all thrones, of every ruler, of every kingdom? Yes. Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, but there's also this clashing narrative with Rome saying, and Rome, Caesar's not Lord, Jesus is Lord of all. Friends, does this make sense why Jesus died as an enemy of the state 
of Rome because he was walking around saying that he was the king, he was the Messiah, he was the son of God. Does this make sense why all but Judas Iscariot, one apostle was the only one who did not get put to death by the Roman Empire. He died of old age, but they tried to kill him. All the other 11 were killed by the Roman government for preaching this story. And friends, for you and I, you think about the early Christians in the arena where they're just saying, bow the knee and say that Caesar is Lord. And they were saying, we're not gonna do it. We're saying Jesus is Lord. And they were killed for it. This gospel is a clashing with that culture of the day. And if that's scandalous to you, friends, it's no, it's no more scandalous today in our own culture when you and I stand up and say, Jesus is Lord. And there's a different narrative. There's a different way of life. There's a different kingdom that we're looking for. It's not the kingdom of this world. It's not what culture offers. It's not the good life that America says we need. There's a different kingdom coming. There's a different king that we love. There's a different way that we're bowing the knee to a totally different person. This is what you and I need in our moment today. So what is the gospel? Well, the long answer is it's according to Mark, and we're going to take 44 weeks to look at it. And we love to just be able to package it and give it in a sentence. But the gospel is this whole story of Jesus in the beginning, the good news of Jesus, the Messiah, Son of God. It's wonderfully complicated, it's wonderfully simple, it's breathtaking, it's powerful. This is what we're gonna do for the next several weeks. So let me close this like this. Why this gospel of Mark and why now? Out of all the options, we had 66 books to choose from. 65 unless we wanted to do Job again. So why this and why now? Here's why, let me give you a few quick things. Number one, the gospel of Mark is a pastoral response to suffering. It's a pastoral response for suffering. You're meant to think of these early Christians huddled in the catacombs reading this gospel account. You're meant to think of how uncertain life felt, how the fact that you knew people that had just been killed by Rome. You knew people that were arrested. You knew people that potentially were gonna give your name up and have you arrested. And so there's this fear, this intense persecution taking place. And that's why what's so fascinating about this book is the narrative slows down when we get to the passion of of Jesus Christ, the week leading up to his death. The narrative slows down and we're meant to sit slowly in the sufferings and in the death that Jesus died, ultimately his resurrection, defeating death, so that you and I can have courage and hope for facing suffering as well. Here's what William Lane says about the early church reading this book. He says, reduced to a catacomb existence, they read of the Lord who is driven deep into the wilderness. The detail recorded only by Mark that in the wilderness, Jesus was with the wild beasts was filled with special significance for those called to enter the arena where they stood helpless in the presence of wild beasts. In Mark's gospel, they found that nothing they could suffer from Nero was alien to the experience of Jesus. Like them, he had been misrepresented to the people and falsely labeled. And if they knew the experience of betrayal from within the circle of intimate friends, it was sobering to recollect that one of the 12 had been Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. As the early church sat in this narrative of the life and the struggle and the persecutions and the misunderstandings and the betrayal and the death of Jesus... This would have given them courage and hope for how they could face their sufferings too. Now, can we just be honest that physical sufferings for being a follower of Jesus is probably a long ways out for us Western Christians. 
you think of other Christians in other parts of the world, different parts of Asia. This is a real reality for our brothers and sisters across the world. But for you and I, we're not really facing that. What we are facing and what we're facing with increased measure is not cultural suffering, but cultural shame for being a follower of Jesus. And increasingly what's gonna happen is that our views or our beliefs are gonna be viewed as backwards and that we're on the wrong side of history. And this is pressuring a lot of people in our current moment to deconstruct and compromise and make these decisions so as to not appear different from our culture. And it's almost like we don't know what to do when we don't have the seat at the table of culture and have the place of power. So we get in bed with certain political parties trying to hold on to the power, trying to keep some measure of significance in our world. And friends, the history of the church is not of the church being at the seat of power. It's the church being on the fringe of society and the fringe of culture being underground in many ways. And this is inviting you that it's actually okay to culturally go underground. It's actually inviting you to be uh, receiving a level of cultural shame because Jesus is again and again and again going to tell us what it means to follow him and the cost that's involved in that. This is a, a book that helps us grapple with suffering. And to that end, that leads me to the second thing I want you to see, which is this book is ultimately a reminder of the cost of discipleship to Jesus. It's a reminder of what it costs to follow Jesus. Mark is so clear. Jesus and Mark is so clear again and again to say, if you want to follow me, here's what it involves. Here's what it entails. And in fact, he has this parable where he talks about different people that receive the word and how they receive the word. And here's what he says in chapter four. He says, when they hear the word, they endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. He goes on to describe another group of people in verse 19. Those who hear the word, but, in the, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. Friends, if there's one great temptation that we face in the West, it's this one right here, that the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things would enter into our lives and choke out our faith. Cares of the world can mean a lot of things. That can mean just being a Christian long enough and seeing enough painful things that it sends you into a spiral. Cares of the world. Jesus is trying to get you to see the types of people that receive the word and how we are called to endure. Or again, in Mark 10, we read the sad story of a successful, young, wealthy man who wants to follow Jesus and he has some bit of understanding and he gives a lot of the right answers. But when Jesus lays out the cost that it's gonna cost him everything, this young man turns away. Here's what it says. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions and Jesus had asked him to sell his possessions. And Jesus said, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Don't think of like wealthy people in our society. We are the wealthy. Even the poorest among us is often more wealthy than the average person in other parts of the world. Friends, Jesus is looking you and me in the eyes and saying, it's hard for you to enter the kingdom. Do you believe that? It's hard for you to enter the kingdom. There's a cost that's involved and it's way more than just like showing up on Sunday. It's gonna cost everything. In fact, in Mark 8, the culmination of this teaching, Jesus says this, and calling to the crowd, to him, with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. 
Friends, this is before Jesus died on a cross. He's speaking to a, a culture that understands Roman crucifixions on a cross, and he's saying, you want to follow me? Then it's going to lead to your death. The good news is that death leads to resurrection, but you can't have resurrection without death. If you want to follow me, it's going to cost you everything. The idea here is that Jesus isn't just Lord over your heart. He's Lord over your body. He's Lord over your money. He's Lord over your sexuality. He's Lord over how you treat your enemies. Oh, by the way, as Christians, you're not even allowed to hate enemies anymore. You can have them. You just can't hate them. You're supposed to love them and pray for them and bless them, right? How crazy is that? I mean, it changes everything. Some people are like grappling with, if I become a Christian, does this part of my life have to change? No, no, that's not true. If you're going to become a Christian, you have to die, all of you, which by the way is what we are celebrating and honoring in the act of baptism when that person goes under the water and comes back up as a new person. Number three, almost done. This book is an offer of hope for failures. Friends, I need hope because I often am more of a failure than I am a success. This gospel of Mark is uniquely offering hope to failures. How so? Well, two levels. The first level is that it's fascinating in this gospel. You're supposed to catch this. Not one sane person ever gets who Jesus really is in the whole book. No sane person gets Jesus right. His disciples misunderstand him. His own family doesn't fully get it. Friends, Peter says the right thing and then immediately tries to rebuke Jesus for dying on a cross, showing that he does not understand what he meant by saying, Jesus, you are the Messiah. He had this idea that Jesus was going to kill all the Romans, not that Jesus was going to die for, for, for all the sin of the world. Like, this was not in his category. So friends, what happens here is no sane person, not the religious leaders of the day, not the Roman government, not Jesus' disciples, not his own family, gets who Jesus is. Do you know the only two uh, characters in the story that get who Jesus is? This is so crazy. Demons and the Roman soldier at the end of the story. The wrong character, not the good guy, like the enemy of, of everybody else. He's at the end going, truly this was the son of God. Peter gets it wrong. Jesus, his family get it wrong. His disciples get it wrong. And the point is that you and I often get it wrong, but there's hope. There's hope for failures. There's another level of failure here that I think is fascinating. Remember, this is the gospel according to Mark. Mark is getting all of this from Peter. Peter includes at the very end his own betrayal of Jesus three times over straight to his face. Can you imagine Peter's like, oh, wait, make sure you include this story. It's me completely screwing it up. Like worst moment of my life, most important day of Jesus's life, and I denied even knowing him. Make sure you write that down. Why would he do that? Because in that culture, you had other Christians that had given up their family members and renounced friends. And now the early church is forced to deal with how, how do you handle someone coming back to church after they've handed over other Christians to get arrested by Nero? How do you handle someone who denied even knowing Jesus so that they could just get off the hook and maintain their life? This book is saying, well, Peter was restored and forgiven. Let's offer forgiveness and restoration for anybody who walks away from Jesus. There's hope for failures. If you're a failure, this book is for you. Only the demons and the Roman soldier get it right. Surely we can find ourselves somewhere comfortable in that realm. Finally, number four, and I'll close with this. The announcement that Jesus is king is what this book is about, but he's not the king that we expected. 
Again and again, they expected the Messiah is going to show up. He's going to kill all our physical enemies, restore power. He's going to take the, the, uh, the seat of the throne in Jerusalem and restore Israel to its rightful place in this culture. That's not at all what he does. Instead, what Jesus does is he shows up as the Messiah who is a suffering servant. Instead of killing his enemies, he dies for them. Instead of pushing Rome out, he forgives their sin and invites them in. And they become the, the, one of the most important local churches in the early church. I mean, how fascinating is this, that Jesus comes as the king and he brings his kingdom, but it's not the type of king and his kingdom's not the type of kingdom that you and I would expect. And friends, today, I think many of us, me included, we have it wrong. We're loving Jesus, we're worshiping Jesus, we're following Jesus, but if we are honest, sometimes the Jesus that we say we love, the Jesus that we have uh, kind of constructed in our mind is actually one of our own design and not the Jesus of scripture. And the kingdom that we assume that he's bringing is not the sort of kingdom that, that often we see in scripture. This book is going to challenge you at every level to reconsider Jesus, not based on what you were told growing up, not based on your own preconceived ideas, based on scripture, who he really is. This is going to change us. And it's not gonna be easy. It's gonna be painful at times. It's gonna challenge our political views at times. It's gonna challenge our economic views at times. It's gonna challenge the way that we relate to one another at times. This book will change ultimately the way that we see Jesus and God willing, give us a more accurate picture so that we can say yes and follow him.